mindsets and the values and the sinful practices of this world. There must be some middle way, some middle road between isolationism on the one hand and worldliness on the other when it comes to how we as Christians are to live in this world. Uh, We want to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, We saw why it makes sense for us to look at Jeremiah 29 for answers. What we have in Jeremiah 29 is a letter written by the prophet to these exiles in Babylon while Zedekiah is ruling over Judah. And so we have over 10,000 of God's people now having been forcibly taken to a foreign city, Babylon. And so these 10,000 people are now exiles here, and they're going to be exiles in Babylon for some time. And what we have in this letter is a word from God concerning how these people should live in that ungodly culture during their time of exile. And we cannot help but note the timeless nature of this letter. This letter fits our situation very well. It fits the situation of every Christian very well because it teaches us how to live when you're in exile for God in a strange land. Now, before I review more, let's go ahead and read beginning in Jeremiah 29. And this is the very word of God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. And I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, 
Then I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, and a hissing, a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab the son of Kaliah and Zedekiah the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. And they have spoken in my name, lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. So, we've seen that Jeremiah is writing this letter for two reasons. He is writing to repudiate the false prophets. And we learn here that we are not to put our hope in pipe dreams and false promises. Uh, Here in our exile of this life, Jesus may come back any moment. Jesus may come back tomorrow. But until he comes back, we are to expect to live a full life here on earth, and we are to make the most of our pilgrimage here. But then secondly, Jeremiah is writing to encourage these exiles. God's people will not be pilgrims forever. This is our hope. That our time of exile will come to an end. For many of us, it will end when we die and we look upon our Savior's faith. But ultimately, it will end when Jesus comes back and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth and then we will truly be home. In our second message, we looked at God's message to the exiles and His message to us. And we saw that we are to trust in the immense power of our God. Nothing that comes against us in this world is stronger than our God. We also saw that we are to trust His loyalty to us. Our God is marked by steadfast love for us. Yes, it's love, but it is steadfast love. He will preserve our souls until the day He brings us to Himself. We also saw that our lives are a part of God's sovereign and perfect will. That our time on this earth, at this point in history, 
at this place on the globe. This is part of God's perfect plan to glorify his name and to bless his people. You are not where you are by accident. Your life is part of a sovereign plan. And then in our last message, we began to get very practical. What is God calling us to do? And we saw that God is calling us to seek the welfare of the community in which he has placed us. We are to seek the prosperity and the protection and the good of Rocky Mount and Wilson and Nashville and Sharpsburg and all of eastern North Carolina. As the cities go, so will go our own welfare. And so how are we to seek the welfare of the areas in which God has placed us? We saw first that we are to fulfill the ordinary, God-given callings in a godly way. That is, we're to have normal lives in which we have families and work jobs, but we're to do these things with humility and with love and with faithfulness and with a strong work ethic. We are to be a people of integrity in our ordinary callings. And God often does extraordinary things through people who are doing the ordinary with integrity and with faith. We saw that we are also to pray. We are to pray for our community. We are to pray for the towns in which we live. We are to pray for their welfare and the welfare of our neighborhoods and the welfare of our neighbors. We are to be constantly going before the throne of grace, interceding for our community, asking for God's blessing and protection. And that's where we stopped. And so now, the question comes, is that all? Is that the end of the story? Is this all that we're to do to live as Christians in this world? Just, just live our lives in a godly way and pray. Is that, is that it? Well, before I say anything else, I need to say this. Even if that was all there was, that would be plenty. That would be plenty. Even if fulfilling our callings in a godly way and praying for our communities was all that God required of us, that in and of itself would be a substantial task. Before we look for more, before we look for, for higher and bigger and grander ways to seek the welfare of our communities for Christ, we first need to examine ourselves. Are we obeying even the most basic commands in the sight of God these things are big and grand things praying for your community fulfilling your callings with integrity what changes cities for good what makes a difference in the lives of our neighbors how does God work to bring about an awakening and to draw people to Christ answer he uses godly praying people and so don't demean those ordinary basic principles they are huge they are the main way that we will reach this community for christ be godly and faithful in your callings and pray but there is some icing for the cake there is something more that can be added to those activities and it's this we seek the welfare of the city through intentional, directed effort. Through intentional, directed effort. 
Look again at Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Our key verse, 29 verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you see that word seek? Seek the welfare of the city. That word seek could be translated inquire, investigate, make an inquiry into, search, seek out, carefully search, study. In other words, that word refers to active effort being made to discern what would be, what would lead to the welfare of the area in which we live. Uh, This word seek in the Hebrew means to actively investigate what can I do to better the welfare of the city in which I live so that in its welfare I might find my welfare. Uh, To seek something means that you're looking into it. You're, You're striving to find it. And so here in our little part of this world, we are to be seeking out peace seeking out God's blessing seeking out prosperity striving to bring those things to Rocky Mount and to Wilson or wherever our particular neighborhood is and so the question for us is this what can we do intentionally and purposefully to make our communities better for the glory of Christ and here I think the Bible gives us some help and so I want to close out this series by mentioning just three ways that we as Christians can actively seek the welfare of our communities even as we continue to fulfill our callings and pray daily. So number one, as the church, the most important way that we can serve our community is by exalting and proclaiming God's truth over and over and over again. What does our community need more than anything else? Our community needs to be taken from darkness into light. Our neighbors need to be taken out of the deception of Satan and the world, and it needs to be brought into the clear truths of the Bible. We're in this room tonight because we once were blind, and we have been brought to see. But there are so many people around us who are still in blindness. And every day our communities are infiltrated with with false messages about what leads to happiness. False messages about what really matters in life. False messages about what is valuable and what is good and what is right. And the role of the local church is to be a place where undiluted truth is proclaimed. That is, the church is to be a lighthouse in a world of lost ships. Whereas Paul told Timothy, the church is to be a pillar and buttress of truth. Holding up the truth. Lifting the truth high. Calling all who will see it to believe it and to come to it. In other words, one of the main ways that we serve the welfare of this community is by supporting the local church through our prayers and through our attendance and through our giving and through our acts of service and through our sacrifice. For more than a century and a decade, Christians have worked to keep this local church here on this little corner here in the reservoir community. 
And the idea is that this place is always here for any who are ready to hear the undiluted truth of God. There is a role for local churches in speaking to communities. It is not right for local churches to completely ignore what's happening in the communities around them. It is not right for local churches never to speak to the realities of what's happening in the communities around them. Rather, churches help inform the conscience of a society. Churches are to help communities understand what God says about whatever may be happening or about whatever challenges that community may be facing. The Bible knows nothing of a strict line between church and state that says that church must never comment on the affairs of state. Just the opposite. As the Bible is being faithfully preached, light is continually being shed on what is happening in this world. Now, I do not believe in endorsing political candidates from the pulpit. I think that's a recipe for disaster. But the Bible is political in this sense. The Bible speaks to the same realities that politics speaks to. Uh, One of my favorite books out there on the table is called The Scots Worthies. And it's a book that tells the story of many godly Scottish men and women who lived and died for the glory of Jesus Christ. And some of my favorite stories in that book speak of Scottish preachers who found government officials sitting in their congregations. And sometimes these Scottish preachers were actually called to preach before the king or to preach before the queen. And rather than watering down their message, rather than finding a safe passage, a safe subject to preach on, these godly men would speak directly to those in power from the pages of the Bible. They would leave no uncertainty about what God says about whatever was happening in that society at that time. Often the situation was one in which the government was seeking to take away the rights of the churches. The government wanted to have more of a say in who was allowed to be a pastor and what they were allowed to preach and what their worship was to look like. And even knowing that one word from these officials could mean the end of their lives, these Scottish preachers would courageously open up their Bibles before those in authority and defend what they called the crown rights of King Jesus over his church. Namely, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and no national human government of any form has the right to dictate who the church is or how the church ought to function. This is why the situation some months ago in Houston, Texas was such a big deal when it looked like that local government was going to subpoena the sermons of pastors in order to look for things that they thought were wrong or disagreed with. No government ought to ever tell a preacher what he can or cannot preach. Rather, we must preach the Word of God. It should not be uncommon in local churches for messages to be preached that speak directly to the issues of the culture. Now, don't get me wrong. The gospel must always be front and center. 
And yes, faithful exposition must be the foundation of every sermon. But if we care for our community, then we will support a place where fellow citizens can come and hear what God says about their lives. A place where they can come and hear what God says about the issues that they're dealing with right now. John the Baptist got in trouble because he spoke openly of King Herod's wickedness in marrying his brother's wife. It cost him his head. The Old Testament prophets spoke often of the wickedness of those in leadership, the kings, the priests, the false prophets. Jesus himself did not stay away from, well, pronouncing woes on the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. You see, the church is to be a prophetic voice speaking God's truth about iniquity and wickedness in the land, calling all to believe the gospel and repent. The church is to be a voice of hope, presenting the glorious promises of Jesus Christ to anyone that will come and hear. And so one way that we seek the welfare of our community is by making sure that places like this local church remain here and remain healthy and remain vibrant and open and ready for any that will come and hear the truth. Second, we can intentionally and purposefully seek the welfare of our community by participating in the democratic process. By participating in the democratic process. This is what makes us different than most Christians throughout most of history. We live in a democracy. The exiles in Babylon had no say in who was leading and governing Babylon. But here we are in a secular, almost pagan now society. And yet we still have some say in the leadership of this land. We not only get to vote on our local leaders, we get to vote on on state and national leaders. We get to take a vote on those who make the laws, those who execute the laws, those who serve as, as judges and the arbiters of justice. If we feel strongly about something, In the democratic process, we have the opportunity to try and persuade others that we are right. And through the processes, we can make real legal changes. We can have laws made, or we can have laws repealed. We can change policies. With enough people, you can even amend the Constitution. God's people in Babylon didn't have nearly the opportunities that we have to make a difference in the land where they were exiles. And so what can we do to seek the welfare of our community in this way? Well, certainly we can vote. We can get informed when election time comes and vote. We can work to help godly people get elected. We can support their campaigns. We can even run for office ourselves should we be inclined to do so. I know many of us have been trying to get Brad to run for a very long time. We can write letters, we can write emails, we can make phone calls to our leaders, letting them know the issues that we're concerned about. We can start petitions, we can attend city council meetings or attend our own neighborhood meetings. And in all of these ways, we can seek the welfare of the city. Now, are there caveats to this? Yes, of course there are. 
We must be sure that we do these things with humility, with love, and with godliness. Frankly, a truly Christian politician is probably not going to look the way most politicians do in our day. And I would say that probably a a politician with true godliness and integrity may have a hard time getting elected. But we must not compromise our godly character and our godly principles in order to succeed politically. We must do what's right and then trust God with the results. Also, we must be careful that we never get so caught up in the politics of this world that we begin to forget that this world is still not ultimately our home. We're to seek the welfare of this city while we're here, but don't lose the biblical perspective. And so we must watch over our hearts when it comes to politics and and make sure we don't lose the biblical perspective. We also must beware the hatred and the bitterness that can arise when we become passionate about politics and we interact with others who hold opposing views. Remember, we're to love our enemies. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to pray for those who persecute us. And also, we must be aware of being taken advantage of by one political party or another so that a candidate can throw a bone to the Christians in order to get their vote even if his other policies are blatantly ungodly. So are there caveats? Yes, there's lots of caveats. I've mentioned a few. There's many more. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, we should thank God for the opportunity we have to seek the welfare of our city through the political process. And so we ought to strive to use it. Well, there's a third way that if we seek out, if we're inquiring carefully, how can I as a Christian better the area in which I live? Well, we find one that is taught in the Scriptures again and again and again. It is emphasized, and it's this. We seek the welfare of the city by caring for the poor and the oppressed. By caring for the poor and the oppressed. How can I possibly help you to see how much this is emphasized in the Scripture? Listen to some of these commands from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.7 If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Deuteronomy 15.11 For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And this was not just the kindness that they were to show one another, but rather they were also to show this kind of kindness even to strangers and foreigners that came in their midst. Deuteronomy 24.14 You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. One of the great indictments that God brought against his people, one of the great reasons that God brought judgment on his people through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, was that they were failing to care for the poor and the oppressed in their midst. Over and over again, the prophets call God's people to repentance because of their failure to treat the poor rightly. Isaiah 58 is just one example in which God rebukes His people 
who were fasting. They, they were fasting, believing that their fasting somehow earned them favor with God. And yet while they were fasting to earn his favor, they were continuing in sin, continuing in wickedness. They thought their fasting somehow made things right with God. But listen to what God says. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 6. God says, Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Those are wonderful promises. Don't we want to be a people whose light is breaking forth like the dawn? Right? Picture the dawn. The sun, it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up. And the whole world is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to see our light as a church just just glowing. And God says, here's how you do it. You loose the bonds of the oppressed. You feed the hungry. You bring the homeless poor into your house and you do it in my name. Jesus often, often talked about caring for those in need even as he himself set the example. Everywhere he went, he was healing those with, di- with diseases. He was casting out demons. Jesus gave us the parable of the Good Samaritan that we just heard preached on this past week. Yes, that parable is about more than just caring for the poor and the hurting. But that parable is not about less than that. Yes, there is a gospel message in the story of the Good Samaritan, but there is also this other message that we are to care for those who come across our path who are in need. We are not to walk by on the other side. Jesus said in Luke 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We see this same teaching in the New Testament letters. Uh, One of my favorite statements from Paul is in Galatians 2. And he's explaining to these Christians in Galatia who are being tempted to question Paul's authority and Paul's credibility. Um, Why is Paul one of the apostles? He didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't one of the original 12. Why should we accept Paul as an apostle? Uh, You can imagine what it was like for the apostles on the day that Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, the one who was nodding in agreement as Stephen was stoned to death, and suddenly he knocks on their door at the doorstep of the apostles and says, I'm one of you. You can imagine how skeptical they were, how even fearful they were of this man. Right? Was this a plot to infiltrate their group? Was this a scheme to learn the names of the leaders so that they could be stoned to death as Stephen was? But Paul tells us this, beginning in Galatians 2, verse 7. Listen. 
He says, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So Paul says not only that these apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship, they also gave him their blessing to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. And there was only one exhortation that they gave Paul. Yes, Paul, you have our support. Go to the world. Take the gospel. But remember one thing. Remember to care for the poor. And Paul says that was exactly the one thing that I was eager to do. And so we see this message throughout the pages of the Bible. But we also see it when the Bible ends and we go into early church history. What marked the early Christians of the first centuries? One of the great marks of the early church was their generosity and the way they cared for the people in need. Uh, Justin Martyr wrote this. He was, he was writing an apology, a defense. Basically, he's writing to a Roman official trying to explain who these Christians are. And he says, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, we now bring what we have into a common fund, and we share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country, but now because of Christ, we live together with such people, and we pray for our enemies. We've taught before, about how the early Christians would help bury the dead of the poor and the outcast when others, including the state, refused to help with such a thing. This one deed, many Christian historians believe that this one deed alone, being willing to help people bury their dead, was one of the major ways that the gospel was given a hearing in the days of the early church and explains, at least partially, the significant growth of Christianity. Another recent book written by sociologist Rodney Stark examines how epidemics in the ancient world led to the growth of Christianity. And using ancient sources, he recounts how Christians would risk their own lives to care for those who were deathly ill when no one else would do so. In fact, some sources tell us that during the plagues, families would take their loved ones who became ill with the plague and they would place their bodies out on the streets while they were still alive to keep others in the house from becoming sick. And in this book, Stark shows that because Christians stayed with the sick, risking their lives and cared for them, rather than fleeing or casting the sick away, they actually gained an immunity to these diseases faster than others and had a better recovery and survival rate than other people. And so the early church is marked by these pictures of kindness towards the poor and the needy. One more shining example of how Christians can make a difference in a community by its care for the needy is Calvin's Geneva. When Calvin was pastoring in Geneva, the influence of the gospel and of Christianity on that city 
transformed the city of Geneva into a refuge for hurting people. Abused women found the city of Geneva to be a refuge where they could flee their abusive husbands. Jews who were fleeing the Spanish Inquisition were promised safety if they could make it to Geneva. All of the reformers worked in their respective cities to make sure that free education was available to everyone. Calvin started a hospital in Geneva. And because of plagues that would devastate the city, he set up a network of deacons to make sure that there was always a man ready to minister to the dying at every hour of the day. When Calvin and his fellow ministers in Geneva got together on one occasion to decide who would be personally visiting the folks who were dying from a deathly plague, the other ministers insisted that Calvin should not be included in the discussion. They said, he's too important. He should not risk his life in this way. But Calvin refused and insisted that he too must be included. He would not allow himself to be excluded from caring for these people, no matter the risk or the cost. Mount Hermon, it is no accident that wherever Christianity has gone in this world, hospitals and orphanages and women's shelters and educational institutions have come with it. There is something about following the Lord Jesus Christ that will not allow us to remain hard-hearted towards those who are in need around us. Some time back, when a doctor with Samaritan's Purse contracted Ebola while caring for the sick in West Africa. There was criticism. And there were negative comments made in the media seeming to imply that this man should have never gone and should have never sought to care for these people. Why is it that even now, however, there are so many Christians involved in sacrificing themselves to care for others in need? And the answer, of course, is that we're in a very different situation than most other people because we know that this life isn't all there is for us. Our best life is yet to come. We don't have to fear death the way the rest of the world does. We don't have to live with insecurity and with worry. We believe Romans 8.28. We know our Savior is with us. We know our Savior is going to bring us safely home. The worst this world can do to us is kill us which takes us immediately into the presence of our Savior. And therefore, we can imitate our Savior in going outside the camp to the places of darkness, the places of danger, and we can make a difference in the name of Christ. So many professing Christians in America want to run away from trouble and distress. We saw it in Rocky Mount. How many churches relocated from within Rocky Mount to escape the poverty, to escape the crime, to escape the need? And frankly, I think they ought to be ashamed of themselves because our instinct as Christians should be to run towards those situations, not away from them. Men in this room, hear this. One great evidence of biblical manhood is that you do not settle into a life of ease and comfort, but that you constantly pursue a challenge to overcome, an obstacle to face, some great work to accomplish for the glory of God. And so what can we do as a church? What can we do as families? What can we do as small groups or as individuals to serve the needy around us? 
That's for you to think through. What does this mean for you in your life? What does it mean for our small groups? What can we do to make a difference? I want us dreaming about this. I want us brainstorming. I want us thinking about these kinds of things. When we're uh, between Sunday school and morning worship, what conversations are we having? I would love for this to be the kind of subject that we're discussing together. I had a great idea this week. Oh, yeah, what was it? We could do this, right? Do we need to do this wisely? Absolutely. Do we need to be discerning? Yes. But let me call on all of us, and I do mean all of us, to dream big, and to have these kinds of discussions. What more can we do? and How can we make a difference? There are needs right here in the reservoir community. And certainly there are many needs in Rocky Mount and in Wilson and in Nashville. It might not mean creating some new program. It might mean us helping jump on board something that's already going on with a, another church. Certainly there are times when we can't join hands with other churches because of differences in belief, but certainly there are times when we can, and certainly if there's one time when we can, it's in helping the poor. And so I hope that we'll be thinking about what more we can do. So, to close the series, let's seek the welfare of the city. How? Fulfill your callings. Fulfill your ordinary daily callings in a godly way, knowing that through this you are salt and light. God does extraordinary things through Christians doing ordinary things for the glory of God. Don't fail to pray every day for our community. Make it a personal habit, a family habit, to pray for the area in which you live and to pray for your neighbors. And then on top of these things, support the ministry of the local church and the preaching of the word of God. Be sure to use the democratic processes of our society and to help work through your votes for godly change. And let us look to the poor and the hurting and the needy and find ways to minister to them for Christ's sake and in Christ's name. May God make us a church truly committed to community ministry. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.